Hello, and welcome to the Media Law Podcast. In this episode, we look back on Lord Haynes' recent decision to use the cover of parliamentary privilege to break an interim injunction imposed by the Court of Appeal. Is it ever justifiable to use parliamentary privilege to undermine litigation? And does this privilege actually confer a blanket immunity on Hayne for his actions? Hello, it's episode three of the Media Law Podcast. I'm Tom Bennett. Joining me are Paul Ragg of the University of Leeds. Hello. And Colin Murray, Reader-in-Law at Newcastle University. Hi there, Tom. Things never stop happening in the world of media law, do they? Uh, Less than a week after we record a podcast on privacy, a member of the House of Lords goes and blows an injunction wide apart, opening up once again the debate on the use of parliamentary privilege to subvert court rulings. Listeners might recall a similar incident in 2011 uh, when the Labour MP John Mann used parliamentary privilege to name the footballer Ryan Giggs as the person who had, allegedly, had an extramarital affair and who had obtained a court injunction giving him anonymity. This time, Peter Hayne, the Labour Party peer, has used uh, the cover of this privilege to name Sir Philip Green as the person who, according to an interim or temporary injunction issued by the Court of Appeal, cannot be named, pending a full hearing at which it will be decided whether or not he can be named. Uh, That hearing will, of course, now be entirely pointless. So, is this a matter of free speech? Is this what parliamentary privilege is really for? And does parliamentary privilege actually provide Hayne with the blanket protection from legal sanctions that he clearly believes it does? Uh, We need to get to the bottom of this. Paul, you've written a post about this on the Inform blog uh, in which you trace the roots of this parliamentary privilege back to the Bill of Rights Act of uh, 1689. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, certainly. So um, the provision we're talking about in the Bill of Rights Act is uh, Article 9, uh, which is written in ye oldie worldie language. But if I put it into modern parlance, it says that the freedom of speech and debates or proceedings in Parliament ought not to be impeached or questioned in any court or place out of Parliament. So this uh, gives us an interesting uh, point at which to begin our discussion because um, when, well, the way that uh, this provision is treated by commentators certainly is that it provides absolute privilege for freedom of speech in Parliament. So when uh, Lord Neuberger was uh, looking at uh, the incident you referred to, Tom, in 2011, He said in his report uh, for the Committee on Super Injunctions that uh, there is no question that any court order could ever extend to Parliament or restrict or prohibit parliamentary debate or proceedings. So on the face of it, this would seem to provide Lord Hayne with a cast-iron defence that what he said... uh, isn't something that proceedings can be brought against him for. Are you entirely convinced by that? I guess that's the that's the question. No. And uh, the reason I'm not entirely convinced by it is because, well, there's a number of reasons that I'm not entirely convinced by it. I mean, Article 9 itself is something that we tend to treat 
for good reason. Um, very uh, courts treat very very respectfully, and it's treated as a sort of uh, sacred principle of our unwritten constitution, albeit in this context it is part of a written constitution. Um, the the question for me is whether what Lord Hain did counts as an act of freedom of speech. So there's different ways that we could look at what Article 9 does uh, in the uh, Bill of Rights. Um, there's the sense in which Article 9 uh, is a jurisdictional provision, which is essentially saying that anything that happens in this place, this place being Parliament, uh, is outside uh, the um, scope of uh, matters that a UK court could look at. So in that sense, it would be like saying if something happens in France, it's not for the UK courts to um, uh, to, to arbitrate on it. Uh, and then there's the other sense, uh, the more sort of prosaic reading of it, which is simply saying that when someone is engaging in an act of freedom of speech, um, that act can't then be challenged in court. Now, in that reading, Lord Hain only falls into the uh, the privilege if what he did was an act of free speech and point that I was making in the informed post that you refer to is that what he did shouldn't count as an act of free speech because it uh, was essentially uh, an act which undermined rule of law and that is something that can't count for reasons that I can go into but something that can't count as an act of free speech. Well let's definitely come back to that but I want to bring Colin in on the the constitutional background to all of this. Um, Colin, do you have a view on those two different ways of looking at Article 9 that, that Paul's set out? In terms of Article 9, I think the key is to, uh, to read it conjunctively as opposed to disjunctively, the freedom of speech and debate or proceedings in Parliament. So there's, I suppose, a bit of both going on. Um, do, is very broadly raised. Now, Paul has written in this in terms of how Article 9 has been treated in the Chater case, and there it was said that things are not part of the core activity, uh, things that aren't part of the core activities of the, house, of the House, in this case, MPs' expenses, could be parceled off from Article 9 and put into a box marked justiciable that the courts can do something about and it won't impede proceedings against MPs or peers who are engaged in uh, fraudulent behaviour in terms of expenses returns. But when it comes to hand speech, we've got something that, well, it clearly fits within the debates of the day. He pops up in the middle of a Lord's sitting and speaks on on an issue of importance in the day. And if you look at Parliament's function in the UK Constitution and you look at what Article 9 is there to protect, it's there to protect freedom to raise matters of public interest. And as soon as you start parsing that or limiting uh, an MP or a peer's ability to engage with that uh, issues of public interest, you're really taking away the whole point of Article 9, that is to place this activity, this 
core activity of what a parliamentarian does beyond the reach of the courts. Yeah, I, I, I take Colin's point, and Colin is making a very important point here about uh, the court's role in all of this and the, the separation of powers. I mean, obviously, there's a certain irony in me raising uh, the separation of powers because, of course, one important aspect of the separation of powers is that it's only judges who decide on the rule of law, not parliamentarians. But I think that the difficulty for me, and and the, and as far as I can, well, from my perspective, I think it's still possible to discipline Lord Hayne and prosecute him outside of court without doing violence to the principle that Colin has articulated, only because only because of the specific facts that we're dealing with here. I mean, this wasn't a discussion generally on a topic in which uh, Philip Green's actions were, were being sort of discussed indirectly. So this wasn't a general debate on, for example, the use of non-disclosure agreements. Um, what happened, what seems to have happened is that a debate was going on and in between two speakers, the space in between two speakers, Lord Hayne shot up, said his part, sat back down, and then ran out and, and gave an interview to the BBC. So there was a sense in which this wasn't core. In fact, there's more than a sense. This wasn't core business in the way that Colin has articulated it because there was no sort of discussion at the time about these issues. But then it's very hard to draw a line there uh, with, say, an activity like an urgent question on a matter of the day. All of that comes in the idea of being able to engage with uh, issues that are live in, uh, in the public sphere in the United Kingdom. And again, to try to impose a format or a framework on that, risks well risks seeing the usefulness of this abridged if you like this is a right that if if we say peter hayne's use of this power is an abuse of this power of this privilege perhaps if we were to go that far it certainly isn't the most egregious one in the history of parliament um you can look at Smith O'Brien and the Chartist MPs in the 1840s who basically used their parliamentary position to say things that would otherwise be treason or sedition and to effectively stir up revolt within the United Kingdom and nothing could be done about that. And I suppose for me that's incredibly important because it gives an opportunity for vastly unpopular speech um, perhaps even dangerous speech, but sometimes necessary speech to take place in the scope of the United Kingdom Constitution, in which otherwise freedom of expression is much more constrained. I think, I think again, Colin, you're making a very important point. I mean, but I would distinguish what happened here with the sort of situation that you describe on the basis that there were live proceedings taking place and that Hayne knew there were live proceedings taking place and that what he did was in contravention of the House's own rules on subjudice. So had this been a proper debate, 
And had he put the question to the Speaker of the House, the Speaker, as far as I can tell, would have been able to intervene before it was asked to say, no, you can't say that because you'll be in breach of these rules. So at that point, what is the problem with leaving this to the parliamentary authorities to discipline in this case? Well, I think the the difficulty from my perspective is that I don't think that goes quite far enough to recognise the significance of what it is Hain has done. This was uh, a case that in, in which there were only an interim uh, injunction had been granted, and it was a case that could have had very important consequences for the debate that should be taking place and in fact is taking place about the use of non-disclosure agreements to silence women who have been the victim of abuse and worse from men of power and as a consequence of what Hain has done we are now deprived of the evidence that we would have had had the process been completed but sort of putting that to one side for a moment the 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 crux of the issue for me is that he has willfully undermined the rule of law and that when in power when men in power and women in power undermine the rule of law on a whim we we don't defend that as a matter of democracy we call it what it is which is tyranny can I just, um, for the purpose of clarification, we spoke a little earlier about, well, Paul, you said the possibility of prosecuting Hain. Um, what, what would that be for? Would that be contempt of court? Yes. That's a um, prosecution. Uh, in fact, uh, we have a recent example, do we not, of uh, Stephen Yaxley Lennon, who did something very similar and was prosecuted. Ah, Tommy Robinson, to those who know him by his more recent version of his name. Yes. Yes. So what we're talking about is the possibility of criminal sanctions being deployed against a member of parliament of the House of Lords for something he said in parliament on the basis that it's not a it's not the sort of thing that the privilege was designed to cover it is instead an attack on the rule of law itself. I imagine there will be some, and Colin, I suspect you may be among them, who are uncomfortable with the, at the idea that the criminal law gets involved at all to sanction speech in Parliament. Well, it's interesting that Paul raises the spectre of tyranny here, because I think that that's very much what Article 9 of the Bill of Rights is supposed to be about. It is supposed to create this space for parliamentarians to raise issues of the day. And you could say Peter Hain has denied, as Paul has said, a, a full hearing of the uh, evidence of this case. But to, to play devil's advocate for Peter Hain, he would say he's brought this into the public domain much quicker and brought much more attention to it than the average courtroom proceeding gets. But uh, I will let Peter Hain speak for himself on that issue. If we do 
create space in which the courts can impugn speech in Parliament, and I mean direct speech on issues of the day, then we create a space where, well, uncomfortable speech can be shut down. And I entirely sympathise with Paul's position. I There have been lots that's been done under the name of Article 9 that at the very least could be described as unedifying. Um, a few years ago, we had the spectre of Lord Campbell Savers, I think, um, naming um, people subject to anonymity under rape shield proceedings using parliamentary privilege. And again, I suppose it's almost a sauce for the goose's sauce for the gander point. You're you're all in with parliamentary privilege. You have to accept that there will be potentially abuses of it if you're to take the good, the idea that there has to be this space in which things can get said that will contribute to public debate in the UK and that it might be necessary to hear. Or otherwise, if it doesn't get said in a democracy, we might get it where we would be at risk of those positions being completely silenced. Yes. Um, I I think what you're saying is in, entirely sensible, Colin, and I, I don't entirely disagree. Um, the The part where I do disagree is the specific context of a politician using and, in fact, hiding behind Article 9 to subvert the rule of law to effectively say a judge has either well not even to say a judge has decided this and i disagree because that's not what was happening here but to say a judge is in the process of deciding this and i can't wait and i'm going to spoil it now without consequence and that for me is not what article 9 is about either as a jurisdictional clause or it's not what it's about as a as a matter of free speech and and it's interesting that the european court of human rights has had limited experience of thinking about this issue but it has thought about it in the case of a against uk in 2002 where the court said in theory it's okay to have this kind of provision that is so wide as to grant absolute freedom of speech. But if you are going to have that kind of provision that's so wide, then it does need careful scrutiny and careful justification. And that, for me, is the space that allows a court to intervene just in these circumstances. And this is why, this is why I'd be interested to see a court think about this, to say, Actually, in these circumstances, and only in these circumstances, was Hain justified in subverting the rule of law? If I was to come a little bit towards you from that statement, Paul, which contains so many really important factors in it about the UK Constitution, the first one would say it's not necessarily without consequence, it's just that the consequence moves into the realm of parliamentary proceedings against an individual rather than judicial proceedings. Um, the second element of it is, yes, there's lots that he seems to have done in this case without prejudging any parliamentary investigation that potentially raises uncomfortable questions, particularly as links to the law firms mm. involved in the case. 
But thirdly, the European court point is a really good one because it brings us on to the HS2 dilemma of two clashing constitutional principles within the UK's uncodified system. And here we have Article 9 of the Bill of Rights, a really deep-rooted, pre-democratic, pre-liberal democratic idea coming up against um, 20th and 21st century human rights law in the shape of the European Convention and its articulation under the Human Rights Act. And if we follow through that Mance Newberger HS2 position, you could see that the courts in a case in the future would be asked to adjudicate as to which one of these rules has constitutional primacy. Because there is an uncomfortable tension between them. I would just say at the moment, six to five and pick them. I think they would probably say that the deeper rule within the constitutional order is the one that they would that they would defer to. And I use the term defer with funny ears around <laughs> well, it. I w- wonder, though, in these circumstances, whether they would defer on pragmatic grounds rather than principled ones, because for me, this is a matter of form rather than substance. Um, but I, Colin, I wanted to pick you up on that, um, just that point, that first point there about what Parliament could do, because I've been trying to discover this, and I defer to your to your greater knowledge on constitutional law, but as far as I could tell, the House seems to be very limited on what it can actually do to discipline Hayne over this. And in fact, the Lord Speaker seems to have put the matter to rest by a very sort of bland statement that that was neither one thing nor the other. It was neither defending Hayne nor admonishing him for what he did. And again, I think, I I suppose your beef then is with the way the House authorities are handling it, but they will very rarely intervene on something that is a matter of debate inside Parliament. Yes. Can I pick up on perhaps a slightly different way of looking at this problem, which occurs to me during the discussion of the relevance of the European Court jurisprudence on this, which is that the European Court of Human Rights is as ever, not wholly comfortable with the idea of blanket immunities. And where they persist, um, those immunities must have a very clear and strong justification on grounds of the importance of freedom of expression in a democratic society and so on and so forth. Now, that question arises in the European court in a case where you have an individual or a set of individuals whose rights conflict with an exercise of parliamentary privilege. And so what we get is uh, the European Court looking at the clash between an individual's interest, say, in privacy, in anonymity, in maintaining their reputation, something like that, against the parliamentary privilege. And you get quite an individualistic clash of rights. You've got the individual against the public interest. But quite a lot of our discussion today has unfolded uh, on the basis that the real clash going on here is between one conception of the public interest, which is the ability to say whatever needs to be said in Parliament without the threat of prosecution hanging over the Speaker, 
that interest clashing with the public interest in maintaining the rule of law. Um, it, it, do we have a problem in trying to work out the relative weight to accord to these arguments when, on the one hand, it seems to me that Lord Haynes' position is rooted squarely in a conception of the public interest, but on the other hand, you've got the individual interests of Sir Philip Green um, and a broader issue relating to the rule of law. Well, I think in response to that, Tom, uh, the problem might be for the architecture of the European court as uh, in terms of dealing with those questions, because a parliamentary privilege like this is very common within legislatures that I suppose in some way could be linked to the Westminster parliamentary model. And I suppose within the European Convention countries, uh, the Irish Oireachtas has something very similar in terms of a set of arrangements to, or to parliamentary privilege in the United Kingdom. But lots of European systems don't have an equivalent of this particular, well, yeah, almost ancient manifestation of freedom of speech. And I suppose a lot of judges from those traditions would perhaps look askance at arguments that are more compelling within the UK context. Now, the question is, if that clash was to come up, how would the European court read, say, what the UK Supreme Court before it had said about how these issues are balanced at the moment under the UK constitution? Would it give weight to an idea of subsidiarity in, or in terms of how this has actually been treated up to this point by the UK? But if you would take it as, is it a popular view? Is it one that judges in the European court would naturally subscribe to? I think the Irish and the UK judge might find themselves out in a limb or in terms of having to explain the point of these principles and why they still sit in parliamentary democracies of this type, as opposed to other European democracies where this rule is more alien. Are these rules simply incapable of responding adequately to the nuances of the style of discourse we have today. I mean, one suspects that there was a time when that which was said in Parliament would be far less widely reported, and that even if a member of Parliament did stand up to impugn a particular individual or to undermine the court in a particular case, um, the effect of it would not be anything like so widespread as it is today. You also, of course, have the proliferation of the use of interim injunctions to, to uh, assist the courts in administering justice. And what you have in this case where, pending a full hearing, the court says, well, okay, we'll, we'll issue an injunction to prohibit publication of the individual's names and the details of the case so that we can go on to hear it. But that is something that's come into use, unless I'm much mistaken, far more in the last 20, to 30, 20 or 30 years than it was used previously. And I just wonder whether uh, there, there may not be an adequate solution to this, but it seems to me that the, the constitutional approach we have at the moment does not adequately respond to that problem, um, or at least doesn't respond in 
a nuanced fashion that, that, that takes account of the, the shifting realities. I think the problem that that Hayne would face if he was ever asked the question in a in a court of law is um, is to defend his actions in terms of proportionality. And of course, the fact that uh, the name was broadcast uh, almost immediately um, sort of adds to the 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 weight of evidence against him because, as you say, Tom the the message was uh, disseminated almost immediately to the waiting world uh, i say almost immediately because i'm told that the bbc actually hung on for 30 minutes before they revealed green's identity because they wanted to check with the lawyers first whether they were able to do so <laughs> well that and raises an point, interesting question doesn't it yeah uh, that's a point i'll come i'll come back to in in, in a moment but uh, I think the difficulty for for Hayne then is to say right why why was it in the public interest for you to undermine the rule of law in the way that you did and if he comes up with a sort of blanket response of well this was a matter of public interest in the kind of or or as he as he said this is this is to do with power wealth and a, a, and abuse he's not addressing the proportionality issue which is yes, it, and the response to him is yes, it was a matter of power, wealth and abuse, but it was one that was being dealt with by a court. So why did you need to intervene to prevent that process? And I think the only place for him to go is to come back to the absoluteness of the privilege. And that's the difficulty that I have with this, that I think the position that we, we get to is that it's not for a court and perhaps not even, I mean, Colin was suggesting it's not even for the House to intervene when or to discipline members when they subvert their own rules on subjudice. Well, I've said that the House currently doesn't. I don't, I'm not sure I would go as far as to say that the House shouldn't right, okay. have taken a harder look at what had happened in this case. I've, I may, I'll just come to the premise of Tom's question and the idea of, of, of parliamentary proceedings and how they're received today, it's we're not a million years on from the point where all parliamentary proceedings were daily reported or in, in newspapers in full. And it's strange that now to get any approach to parliamentary proceedings on television, it seems that almost parliamentarians are 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 being well, I won't say forced, but see the merits in doing things that are perhaps more outrageous to keep themselves in the public sphere and, uh, and, and to grab public attention. I think our lack of interest or the media's general lack of interest in parliamentary proceedings can add to almost a toxicity in terms of parliamentarians' own attitudes to their position and what they need to do to get airtime for their views. And that brings us perhaps neatly to the question of the media's role in all of this. I mean, let's assume, arguendo, that Lord Hayne is in fact immune from prosecution for this. Mm. Does that privilege automatically extend to media reporting of what he has said? Because the, 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 the basic consensus seems to be yes, but still, the BBC 
and no doubt some other broadcasters, took a little time just to check. Yes. Uh, well, yeah, I struggle a bit with this because, of course, ordinarily where the where broadcasters and press would 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 um, hang their hat is is by saying, "Well, this is a, a matter of qualified privilege." Um, yes. But normally, when they talk about qualified privilege, that's in the context of defamation, whereas we're talking about qualified privilege mm. in the context of undermining an injunction or at least helping to undermine an injunction which is contempt of court so i'm not entirely sure how qualified privilege plays out there and it's entire it's it's not gone unnoticed that if you see the news reports on it what the news channels were saying and have consistently said is not that the individual who obtained the non-disclosure agreement was Sir Philip Green, but rather that Sir Philip Green is the person who has been named in Parliament as the person who has <laughs> gone and got this disclosure agreement. So they're, they're, they're still hedging their bets, which I guess they don't have to you know, hang, hang their hat on making the obvious assertion, given that they can phrase it that way. But it's yeah, interesting. It is an interesting one as to just how gleefully even within that 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 strict frame of words that is being used, the media have jumped on the reporting of this case because you could say a big part of this comes down to editorial standards and how widely something in Parliament should be reported. Um, again, if we talk about a breach, say, of, re, of rape shield laws and, and anonymity orders around individuals involved in um, making claims that uh, they've been raped well then the media when people have been named in parliament have been much more reluctant generally to play clips or to report on those speeches and here i think we have an elision of interests the media wanted to get this particular story out and peter hayne was a very convenient vehicle for allowing them to do so which I suppose would, if it were not running the risk of being libelous, bring us to an interesting discussion of um, Peter Haynes' apparent links with the law firm uh, involved in defending the original case. But given that it might be libelous and we are a young podcast, we're not going to do that. <laughs> but it may well take us there. Well, gentlemen, I think I'm going to thank you both very much for that, particularly Colin. Thanks for joining us there. Thank you, Tom. Um, Thank you, Paul. Colin's going to go, but Paul and I will be back with the news shortly. Right. Time for the news. Paul, you have some news? I do have some news. I have um, two pieces of news, uh, the first of which you, you're not going to like. Oh, here we go. Yeah. The Society of Editors has written to the Attorney General seeking clarification on the uh, Cliff Richard decision. Uh, the Society of Editors are on my side, um, which I think is probably the first and last time I'll use that phrase. Um, they've expressed the concern that uh, the ruling undoubtedly places the press, that's their Quote, undoubtedly places the press in a difficult position when it comes to reporting investigations being carried out by the police. 
And they say there's already anecdotal evidence from members of the society that newsrooms are unsure of what they can and cannot report. Um, yeah, so they think the decision should be challenged. Um, they clearly need to listen to our podcast. Well, well just my, my part of it. Um, uh, maybe they did. Maybe that's why they've written the letter. Oh, if they listen to us, they'd know what they could and couldn't report. Uh, <laughs> this is how we'll solve the newsroom problem. Exactly. Okay, yeah. so the Attorney General, it's the Attorney General in a position to clarify this? I, I suppose this is, he can advise on contempt, but... Yeah, I I was a bit... Yeah, I was a bit uncertain about this as well, because um, if you remember when uh, when the BBC announced that it wasn't going to appeal the decision they also at the same time said but we are going to write to the attorney general's office to which the attorney general's office immediately tweeted well i wouldn't bother because it's nothing to do with us well and quite right it isn't so i'm not entirely sure what what they've got in mind unless they're thinking unless they're thinking is he can bring some kind of reference case i guess but i mean it's it's not been done in privacy before. No. I mean, the, the reason that these news organizations have very expensive legal departments is to provide them with the advice that they need in these circumstances, which yeah. they can get by basically following the law as it's been in misuse of private information for the last 15 years. Yep. Saying, this is how it applies. Okay, it's been developed a bit over time, but we're not talking about leaps and bounds changes in the Cliff Richard case. Hmm. Yeah. Um, also, a piece of interesting news. Um, Ipso, um, so the Independent Press Standards Organization, which is the press, regular, press regulator that replaced uh, the Press Complaints Commission, uh, reports that it received uh, 20,000, well, in fact, more than 20,000 complaints in 2017 about its member newspapers, uh, which is up from uh, 15,000 in the preceding year. Wow. 25% increase. So interesting um, statistic. It doesn't uh, offer an explanation for why. Um I suppose one of the reasons why is that people know more about Ipso now. Maybe they feel more comfortable with Ipso and feel that it's worth complaining to them. Yeah, I guess. All right. Interesting stuff. Yeah. Now your turn for the news. Well, um, the the news I have relates to a, a case that's gone to to appeal. Um, and it's been heard this week, uh, the appeal and the case of Le Show and independent uh, print has uh, had two days this week in the Supreme Court. Um, now, it's a case about defamation, libel. Um, do you remember back? You remember back in 2013, we had uh, the Defamation Act of 2013. It was the brainchild mm. of the uh, much missed coalition government of the day. <laughs> um, and it was brought in with the broad aim of liberalizing defamation law. 
make it easier both for uh, free speech issues to contribute to defenses in defamation claims um, and also to make it uh, harder for big companies to squash criticism mm -hmm. uh, that was made of them mainly online by uh, ordinary members of the public. So it was supposed to uh, promote freedom of speech interests in, in those ways. Well, the show comes along um, and uh, it proceeds both through the High Court initially and then on appeal to the Court of Appeal. And now it will go, well, now it's been to the Supreme Court as well. And we're waiting for that judgment. Um, but it's an important case because it's one of the first cases that we've had on Section 1 of yeah. the Defamation Act, which is the part to do with what counts as a defamatory statement and, and attracts liability. Yeah. Um, so Section 1 has two parts. And uh, the first part says that a statement is not defamatory um, unless it causes the claimant uh, serious reputational harm. Now, that is that builds on, or it seems to build on, the old common law rule that a defamatory statement is simply one that lowers a person in the estimation of right-thinking members of society. Mm. So the idea now is that not only must the statement lower your reputation in the eyes of right-thinking members of society, but it must also cause you serious harm to that reputation. Yeah. Now, Section 1, Subsection 2 says that if the claimant is a body corporate, a body that trades for profit, such as a company, not only must it satisfy the old common law rule, not only must it satisfy Section 1, Subsection 1, serious harm to reputation, but it must also satisfy uh, the requirement of showing serious financial loss as a result of the allegedly defamatory statement. Yeah. And if it can't, then there will be no cause of action. Okay, so Le Show is to do with the first of those statutory sections, section one, subsection one. Um, and the question really that it, it grapples with is, what does in practical terms the claimant in a defamation case have to provide evidence of in order to show that they have suffered or are likely to suffer serious reputational harm. Now, at, at first instance, in the High Court, the judge, Mr. Justice Warby, said that in most cases, the statute requires claimant to adduce evidence showing the seriousness of the reputational harm. Now, there'll be some cases where the words that have been used are so serious that we can infer yeah. serious harm. So if you were to suggest that a person was a terrorist or a murderer, mm. for instance, well, that is such a serious allegation, we can infer that it will cause serious reputational harm if it's published. But for anything other than these very obvious cases, uh, the claimant will have to adduce evidence. And that evidence 
will have to show things like the extent to which the publication has been disseminated amongst other people. Um, and there might be some evidence. You might be able to get witness statements to explain just how much the reputation suffered, or you might be able to adduce evidence of uh, actual losses in, uh, in in opportunity that come from harm to reputation, for instance, lost business or you know, lost offer of employment, something like that. There's to be no limit on you know, the types of evidence that could be adduced. But the point that the judge was making is that the statute was clearly aiming to protect freedom of expression and thus to raise the bar in defamation claims, make it harder to bring them. And so yeah. uh, it required evidence. Yeah. Now, the Court of Appeal, when it heard the Le Chaux case, disagreed with that. Um, and what it said was, no, the old common law way of doing things was simply to infer that the uh, allegation was sufficiently serious as to amount to defamation. Um, and that inference could be drawn simply from the words used, as well as the context within which they were spoken. So that idea of taking a really serious allegation and just and just inferring that it is serious enough to cause you serious reputational harm um, would apply not just to the most serious allegations, but to all allegations. And unless they are trivial, then there's going to be a relatively straightforward inference of harm. Now, that yeah. doesn't raise the bar to the old but common law defamation claims. Isn't that... Um... Yeah, this is this is really interesting because it, it, isn't the the sort of threshold for seriousness a reference to the Thornton case? It is. So this is one of the points where the Court of Appeal, I think, misunderstands <clears throat> where the common law had gotten to mm. at this point, because it's not that the statute made a, a massive change to the law and raising the bar, what it was really doing is codifying um, the point that the law had pretty much already gotten itself to. There'd been yeah. this case, Thornton, that you referred to a few years ago in the High Court, and Mr. Justice Tugendhat had said in that case that when you take all of the common law's requirements together, they disclose a threshold of seriousness. And unless a claim is serious, and that, that is that it causes some serious degree of reputational harm, then it simply won't be actionable. So the common law had already reached that point. Uh, the Court of Appeal says that the High Court's ruling in this case is, is wrong on that point, because if uh, Section 1, Subsection 1 requires evidence to be adduced, that is a significant change from the way the common law was. And we don't presume Parliament to have intended to effect a significant change unless it uses clear wording to that effect. And there is no clear wording to that effect in Section 1. Therefore, the Court of Appeal chooses to read it down and simply say, well, what you need is to is simply an, an inference will do. Now, the problem with that is, as I've just said, it wouldn't have represented a significant change in the common law because owing to Thornton and also an earlier case called Jamil, which is on a slightly different point, but it's related. Um, 
because of the combined effect of those cases, the common law had already reached that point. So it wouldn't represent the major shift that the Court of Appeal feared it would. Because it doesn't represent a significant shift, there's no reason to presume that Parliament did not know what it was doing. Um, So that's the situation which finds itself appealed to the Supreme Court um, this week. Okay. So if I am hearing you correctly, then, the issue is about the standard of defamatory statement that is actionable. So accepting that it needs to be serious to be actionable, the question is about, well, what constitutes seriousness? Do we take, do we do, do we determine seriousness from the words alone or do we need something more than simply the words? Do we need to show a causal effect? And so the issue is around this question and this phrase, which I think is in the explanatory notes, isn't it, about raising the bar. When Parliament mentions that Section 1.1 is raising the bar, does it mean the common law raised the bar in the decisions of Thornton and Jamil, or does it mean that actually Section 1.1 raises the bar even further or even higher than Thornton and Jamil? Well, I think that it raises the bar higher than Thornton and Jamil, but not a lot higher. So whereas Thornton and Jamil had gotten to the point of requiring seriousness, they would accept inferential evidence of seriousness. In order to, for the statute to actually achieve its stated aim of raising the bar and providing greater protection for freedom of expression, then uh, it should be taken, in the view of the High Court, to require something more than the inferences that the common law worked on. And thus, according to the High Court, some further evidence should be adduced to prove the harm to reputation. All of which said, it's not a massive leap beyond where we'd gotten to. Now, the reason the Court of Appeal was so irked by this is that in their view, libel, the cause of action for libel, had always been what we call actionable per se. That is, actionable without having to prove damage. And it got really attached to the notion that libel was actionable per se, and that if the High Court's interpretation of the statute was right, then libel would no longer be actionable per se, and that would constitute a radical change. Um, But when you look at the effect that Thornton and Jamil had had on the common law, it's quite clear that libel has not been actionable per se for at least 10 years. And so the change takes on a much less significant characteristic, and one that I don't think is, is one that ought to be ruled out by the court. Least of all, when you look at it in the context of the statute and the stated aims of the statute being to improve protection for freedom of expression. Do you think it's relevant at all that when they, when the Court of Appeal is talking about this radicalism, 
and the need for clear evidence to that effect. Was there any suggestion in the Court of Appeal decision or or any reference to Section 4? Because, of course, Section 4, I think it's subsection 6, does say explicitly the Reynolds privilege defence in common law is abolished. Was the Court of Appeal looking for a similar sort of statement in Section 1 to the effect that the standard of harm is greater than that taken in Thornton and Jamil? Perhaps. I don't actually recall seeing uh, a part in the judgment specifically on Section 4. They may well have been, but certainly the Court of Appeal did look at and was referred to other statutes where there had been significant changes and express wording had been used. Mm. Um, And yes, I can entirely see why when you have one part of the statute using express words to abolish a common law rule, um, a section that doesn't do that would appear odd um, if it were interpreted to effect such a significant change. The point I make is that it's a less significant change than the court appears uh, to appreciate. But we will see what the Supreme Court makes of it. Um, it's relevant, particularly going forward, because uh, a subsequent case that was heard this summer in the High Court, a case called Berkey and 7030, extended the approach to interpreting Section 1, Subsection 1, that the Court of Appeal had come up with, come up with in Le Show, that is, that inferences will do, it was extended to the uh, to Section 1, Subsection 2, um, which is the point at which the Court looks for evidence of serious financial loss. Uh, and what we then ended up with was a situation where in Berkey, um, the claimant company tried first of all first of all said um, that the allegations made against it in respect to it, it was in respect of an online uh, review from a dissatisfied customer um, and they said well first of all the allegations are pretty serious in themselves on the word so it should be possible to infer um, serious reputational harm and the court accepted that at which point the, the, the claimant company said, and since you've inferred that the reputational harm will be serious and we are a company, it's possible to infer that given where it is, um, that the harm that we suffer, for instance, if we lose a single customer because our customers pay us lots of money, then, repu- then the financial loss we would suffer would also be serious. And the court accepted that. But what you've actually done there is stack one inference on top of another. And neither yeah. inference proves the case necessarily on balance of probabilities. And if you have two, one atop the other, um, that prove the case below the notional 51% threshold of a balance of probabilities test, then you could actually end up with a claim succeeding that cannot be proved, quantitatively speaking, on the balance of probabilities, simply because you've stacked one set of inferences on top of another, a bit like a house of cards. Yeah. So that's why I think this is an important case. If the Supreme Court uh, reverses the approach that the Court of Appeal 
took in the show, it will have a knock-on effect on uh, cases like the Berkey case, which I would then expect also to be appealed. But yeah. we wait and see. It's it's certainly a very important piece of litigation because it's taken a long time for us to get much litigation on the uh, on the 2013 Act. Yeah, um, but it's important that we clarify how Section One operates. So yeah, we're going to wait and see. Uh, I, I'm not entirely certain when the Supreme Court is going to deliver its judgment in that. I wouldn't expect it before the New Year at this point, um, as we go to record this in mid-November. Uh, so, uh, I suppose there's not an outside chance to be in before Christmas, but uh, I wouldn't hold my breath. No, I'm going to put good money down on it being available in February. Right, good one. We'll look out for it then. We'll come back to this, perhaps, um, to this issue and, and see what the Supreme Court says, if it says anything interesting. Right, well, that brings us to the end. So, thanks for listening. Um, we will see you next time. Until then, goodbye from me. Goodbye from Paul. Goodbye. This episode of the Media Law Podcast featured Tom Bennett, City, University of London, Paul Ragg, University of Leeds, and Colin Murray, Newcastle University. It was funded jointly by both City University and Leeds University.